When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to Group Text. So, I don't even know where to start with my next guest because I am a fan, and I think most of you are too, but not just that, we have the same nickname and apparently are wearing the same jewelry. So, please welcome clearly my my separated at birth <laughs> style to win, <laughs> and we have matching glasses. Yeah, we do. We got no a lot Robbins. Going on here. I just don't have bangs. But you could. You can get clip-on ones. What? Yeah, you can get clip-on bangs now. Shut mine are mine aren't clip-on, but where do you how do you clip them on? They come like like extensions. You just literally like tease it a little, clip them in, put your hair over it. No way. Yeah. Mine aren't clipping, but you can have clip-in bangs. I might have to try that. It's like bangs without the commitment. I, I I like things without a commitment. That's a don't, good idea. Don't we all? I have so many questions for you, but I have some questions about stuff that I didn't find answers to when I was oh, researching you. Good. Ask away. Okay. What were you like as a kid? Oh, my God. Um, You know what I was like as a kid? I figured out pretty quickly there's two types of people on the playground. There's the type of kids that stand around waiting to be picked for a team. And there's the people that do the picking. And I think I became one of those people that managed uh, childhood anxiety by over-functioning, showing up early, being the one in charge, being the first to raise my hand. And um, so I was just very outgoing and uh, kind of goofy and really, um, yeah, I mean, I was, I, I was a popular kid. I mean, I played sports. I participated in student government. I'm sure I was very annoying in that regard. Uh, an overachiever because from a very young age, I also figured out that, oh, people really like you and love you when you're achieving shit. And so, you know, worked hard, played hard kind of person. Well, you brought up student body because you do seem like the type that would have been student body president. I was. wow i pulled that i i that was just a guess i'm glad i was right i should go go play the lottery today Uh, it was also you know i it was a tiny little town and so there were only 70 of us in my graduating class so i was president of the student body but it's not like there were 15 people running it was kind of like are you doing it are you doing it i don't want to do are you doing okay all right all right all right i'll do it so it certainly looks good on the resume. And you ended up going to law school. What made, did you always want to go to law school? Were you always fascinated by the law? No, not really. Um, I went to law school because um, my boyfriend had gotten into graduate school and I didn't know what the hell to do with my life. 
And uh, after graduating from college, I got a temp job and the temp agency put me in a law firm. I hated every second of that year that I worked in a law firm. And yet everybody around me started applying to law school. My boyfriend had gotten into school. Uh, graduate school, and I didn't know what to do with my life. So I'm like, I guess I'll just apply to law school because I thought, well, I, I don't have to be a lawyer. I could go to law school. It sounds good. And um, I'll do something else. And so that's how I decided to apply to law school. Which, you know, I my mom and we've always lived by the kind of the credo. I mean, maybe it's more of an entertainment industry thing. You go through the doors that open because you mm-hmm. don't know where they're going to lead you which mm-hmm. is kind of exactly what happened to you with law school. My whole life has been like the cartoon. Uh, I think it's Looney Tunes where I think it's Daffy Duck who wanders sleepwalking into a uh, construction zone mm-hmm. with you know his hands out and he's walking and all of a sudden next thing you know, he's stepped onto a beam that's lifting and the beam swings and just as he's about to fall, he steps. My whole life feels like that movie Sliding Doors. And there are these incredible moments that I can point back to, and I'm sure everybody in their whole life has this. You can sit in the seat right now and look backwards and go, oh, that's why that particular dot on the map happened. And I think, for example, there was this moment in law school, which I also hated. I hated law school because I didn't even know I was dyslexic then. So imagine like all the reading and the writing, and I just felt there must be something wrong with my brain. I can't do what all these kids are doing. And why do they like it? And why am I miserable? And I hate myself and I hate law school. And I remember third year when they bring uh, law firms on for campus recruiting, I got all dressed up in my suit. And my way back then to figure out whether or not it would be a law firm I could tolerate working at, this would have been 19... 93, was I had a pantsuit from Ann Taylor. And it was not only a pantsuit, but it had wide blue kind of flowy legs and it had shoulder pads and a big belt around the, the jacket. Like, you know, something I could see your your, your mom having worn, you know, and I could very, just see her in it. Very fashion at the time. Yes. And also very not what women wore working no. in law firms. Like there were rules against pants in law firms. And I remember going up the steps to the to the building where they were holding the corporate recruiting. And um, the I was passing a friend of mine, a guy walking down. He's like, you're wearing that to an interview? And I'm like, yes, I am. And so it was kind of like my little test. Would they tolerate this? Because I knew I would not be able to work somewhere where I couldn't just wear what I wanted to wear in terms of pants. So I'm standing outside the doorway. This is one of these sliding door moments. And I am waiting for the interviewer to get done with the person before me. And across the hall is a guy sitting behind a desk and he's got a very tired tweed suit on and he's got a scruffy little beard. His name was Steve Goldblum. And his door was open and nobody was in there. And so I'm like, hi, you know, I'm a very friendly person from the Midwest. And he's like, hello. And I said, what firm are you from? And he said, I'm not from a firm. I'm one of the, uh, I'm the bureau chief for the Legal Aid Society in New York, the Criminal Defense Division. And I said, really? And he said, yes. And, and, uh, and, and then he said, I said, so you're a public defender? And he said, yes, we are for the city of New York. 
And I asked the classic, how can you do that? And so we start talking and I find myself walking into the room. I sit down in the chair and we talk and talk and talk. I miss them calling my name across the hall. Steve invites me to a callback interview on the spot and I go down to legal aid in New York and I land the job and I become a public defender in New York City right out of law school. And that's how that happened. I mean, being a public defender, especially in New York, is tough. No joke. And they were running court 24 hours a day then. So they had night court at that time. I don't know if they still do. And it was also the time when Giuliani was really like they had, they were arresting everybody. The, the guys that had the squeegees, people holding open bank doors. They were really trying to uh, make uh, the Times Square area uh, much uh, safer for tourists. And so there were tons of arrests. And so they worked, you worked 20, you had to work a night shift as a new lawyer. And um, honestly, it was one of the greatest jobs I've ever had because when you're a public defender, your clients don't pick you. And it is an exercise in meeting another human being in a moment mm -hmm. of crisis, a human being that has no reason to trust you, who didn't ask to have you there, and the job is really about building trust. And it's about being effective in a system that is largely stacked against your clients. And it's also, nobody talks about this part. To be effective, I believe you need to be respected. And that means you also need to conduct yourself in a way where you are a, a phenomenal attorney on behalf of your clients. And you are also respected by the police officers and the court officers and the judges and the clerks and the prosecutors that you have to work with every day. And so it was an incredible experience um, to not only serve people that um, were in a state of crisis and were in need of legal representation and were in need of having our constitutional system uh, literally upheld day to day to day in, you know, the ins and outs of, of court proceedings, but also training in terms of how to conduct yourself aligned with your own values and with how you want to be treated, respected, and perceived in a very adversarial system. And, you know, I still think a lot about the lessons learned and I draw upon it every day. What was your most difficult case, just because I'm fascinated. I, I, I have another friend who was a criminal defense attorney and went through the whole process before she be, went to independent practice. And I'm always like, and she worked, believe it or not, in the gang division mm -hmm. out here in LA. Mm -hmm. What was your most frightening case? Were you ever, no. let me rephrase it. Were you ever scared? Because you're very Never. confident. Really? Never. Never. I, I, well, I, so, so, I'll, I'll tell you two stories. So the first story is about when I just on a hunch figured out the secret to gaining trust in an instant. And you got to understand that while I went to an Ivy League college and I have a law degree, I come from a long line of farmers, blue collar folks, like, you know, 
dirt under your fingernails and cracked into your knuckles kind of kind of folks. Like, you know, we're eating supper at 8.30 at night because people aren't done with the chores. Dad's not home from work. Like I, I just am not fancy. Although I'm fancy on paper, I am not fancy in my DNA. I am like as down to earth mm-hmm. as, as a human being comes. And so, you know, I show up at this job. I'm terrified. I've never done criminal law. I don't, I don't like, you know, you're new. You don't know what you're doing. And one of the things that intrigued me about the job was that, you know, he said, look, if you go to the DA's office, which I had also applied to, he said, you're going to have a bazillion supervisors. You come here, we train you, you're in court all day. You get to make the decisions. You are going to be in charge of what's going on. And I love that idea and the challenge of it. And so I was terrified the first like two or three months. And, you know, I had my like little Ann Taylor suit on, not even the power suit. Like, you know, I'm in night court. And the way that you would meet your clients if you work night court is you'd be sitting there at two o'clock in the morning and the bailiff would come in with a stack of folders and they'd plop them onto the basket that was sitting on the legal aid desk. And that kind of, you know, kind of gets you awake a little bit. And then you like are rifling through them. Oh, this person's accused of rape. This person's just, you know, been accused of robbing a bank. This person's accused of jumping over a turnstile. This person, you know, selling drugs, this person, this. And so they just hand them out. And, you know, you have senior attorneys that take the serious stuff. And then the junior attorneys take the little stuff because that's how you learn. Right. And so there are two doors always in a courtroom. If you look at a a bench where the judge sits, there's a door on the right, a door on the left. One door goes back to the administrative hallways. That's the door the jury typically comes in and out of, right? And the judge disappears through. The other door is to the cages behind where the judge sits, where they're holding people. And so I would swing open that door and I'd walk, you know, kind of march back there in my little heels, you know, as a 24 year old in New York City, you know, holding, you know, holding the thing and shaking. You know, I'm 24, 25, in my brand new suit. Oh my God. And, and some of these guys that I was representing, they've been in the system longer than I'd been alive. Right. And, you know, the rap sheet. It, at that point, they printed them out with the holes on the side. Remember mm-hmm. those printers? And so yep. if you tip the folder forward, they'd flip forward like an accordion. And it is so obvious that when somebody as green as me shows up, if you are somebody that's in a serious situation, you're like, oh, my God. This chick, right. you got to be fucking kidding me. Like, you know, <laughs> just like, like. And so. They would just chew me up and spit me out, and they should have, because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I certainly did not garner confidence or trust. And that's even for people that have been arrested for the first time, right? You know, I'm right. fumbling my words. I'm like, I have family here. And so I'm getting my sea legs. I don't know what got into me, but I was about two and a half months into the job, and I got my little folder, right? And I'm, and I'm, and I'm walking back to the door and, oh, I know what happened. The attorney that was back there before me walked out and they kind of had this rude exchange where they like didn't hold the door and it kind of hit me a little bit. And I was so pissed. I kicked the door and the door flung open and hit the side. And a couple of the guys turned and I don't know what it was, but you know, the, the blue collar roots, I literally look at the name and I'm like, where the fuck is 
Johnson, da, 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 da. And everybody stops. And, and I go, did you not hear me? Where the fuck is, like, wake his ass. Like, and then they're all like, oh. oh. And, and then he stands up and he goes, that's me. And I said, get over here and sit your ass down. I'm your lawyer. And he did. He, came, he sat down. And then I said, look, if you think I'm a bitch right now, wait till you see what I'm like out there. I need you to just not talk. I'm going to tell you how this is going to go. And then all of a sudden, this guy behind him goes, can you get that old guy in here? I want this lady to represent. And so they like, and what I realized in that moment is that all somebody wants when they're in the crisis is someone to fight for them. I agree 100%. That's it. agree 100%. That's it. We all go through life. Everyone needs a champion. Yeah. Everyone needs, you know, you then went over to CNN and got the television bug a little bit. Did you ever, did you ever consider that did was tv no. ever in the back media ever well, in the back, in the of, your back mind? of my mind you like i grew up uh in western michigan and i'd come home and donahue or you know oprah would be on or or uh montel i always thought that would be the coolest job in the world uh never in a million years did i think it would actually become a reality for me um you know the cnn thing was even interesting because i didn't start um by trying to be on television. What happened is I just was invited to do a Saturday morning radio show in Boston, like a little, you know, two hours on the radio, eight to 10, every Saturday morning, little uh, hot topic, call in advice kind of thing. And the show took off and Cox media invited me to, uh, inter- or to, to apply for a spot on Sunday nights. That then took off. I then got a five-day-a-week show syndicated out of Orlando, and that was right when Trayvon Martin was murdered. And that was in Sanford outside of Orlando. And over the course of that year leading up to the trial, I talked about that case all the time. And they, the station group manager applied or basically applied for the Gracie on my behalf, and I won the Talk Show Host of the Year Award in radio. For the you know, people awards. don't. What people don't know is the Gracie is a very big deal. I've presented at the Gracies, and it it honors women in media. Yeah, yeah. And so, all of a sudden, uh, my you know, I didn't even have it. I like had a lawyer calls and like, you're not going to believe this. CNN just called. They want to hire you. I'm like, what? And so I go in and I meet with Jeff Zucker, and I'm like, why do you want to hire me? And he said, because I love people in radio. And I don't want Fox News to have you. And I love what you were doing on the George, you know, the George Zimmerman trial, because what happened is I, you know, was there in Orlando, not living there, but they brought me down for the trial and I sat in the courtroom every day. And then, of course, everybody swoops you up and you start, you know, just talking. And then he said, "Um, and, you know, I have a ton of people, Mel, in this building are really smart, but I don't have anybody who talks like she's at a kitchen table. And I love that about the way that you talk about really complex things. And I said, but, you know, Jeff, I haven't been inside a courtroom practicing law in like over a decade. And he's like, that's okay. He's like, they get two to three minutes. You understand what you're doing. You're a lawyer. You're like, it's, it's great. We're going to start you there and we'll see what happens. And so, yeah, I was uh, at CNN um, 
during some of the biggest uh, social justice cases, Tamir Wright, uh, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, Michael Brown. I mean, it was really an incredible uh, honor to be part of that organization. And one of the things that I got, it's not that I got the bug. What I got was a tremendous amount of training Mm -hmm. in just the raw skills of talking down to a break, reading a uh, teleprompter, understanding the news cycle, uh, virality of media, uh, just all of it. Like that sort of training, like you just can't even, I can't even quantify how much I absorbed. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so freaking successful in what I do now, because the, the amount of varied experiences that I've gathered from being a public defender to being in radio, to being on television, to covering live cases, to representing people who can't afford attorneys, to, you know, all the life lessons that go along with the mental health struggles that I've had, that they form this toolkit that makes me technically an expert in terms of the raw skills of presenting and being a host and, you know, that kind of stuff, which makes you slay it on a stage. And the nuances of stories are way more interesting than facts. Advice is boring as fuck to listen to. Like yeah. you gotta, you gotta actually inspire people through story and emotion. And so anyway. But you, you mentioned language and sort of very straightforward and language has served you very well. Yes. Through all of your multiple careers. Yes. Um, I always find that interesting. People often relate to the lack of bullshit. And your books have been runaway bestsellers. I have on here, it's like 33 languages. How many millions of copies? And you know what's interesting? I'm self-published. No, I want to get to that in a minute too, because that just shows you have a good brain. That's just, that's just, that's just Ivy League, you know. No, no, bus- Business not. class 101 to think of, ooh, I can get more of the profits. If you believe uh, in yourself. If you believe in yourself. If you believe in what you're doing, you should own what you're doing. How did you get the first book started? Um, well. it takes, by the way, because it takes a ton of courage to write a book. I, I know I'm an author. It is hard to sit down and just start, just like your TED Talks. Like, they blew up because you were the so honest. The story behind these, again, these are sliding door moments. See, I really feel like the universe, God, whatever you want to believe in, I believe that there was significant divine intervention because there is no other explanation it's not dumb luck. There is, it's so intentional how this all happened, but not intentional by me. So for example, I'm on CNN and I am just a paid commentator. I'm one of five, four lawyers on their paid commentator team at that point. And um, they're putting on the first ever TEDx conference. I've never given a speech in my life. It's very different to stand in a courtroom. Yes where you talk for five minutes at a time or talk to a judge or whatever than to stand on a stage. Well, like me, I can talk to a camera all day. I have such anxiety before speaking in public and people are always shocked about that. 
So it's very much the same. You could stand up in court, but when you're in front of an audience, I panic. I'm like, oh, I can teach you how to stop doing that. Oh, well, I have to, I don't pay, I panic until I get my first laugh. And then I know I'm home free. Oh, awesome. But until that moment, because you have to read the room. Yep, 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 that's true. Um, I, um, so I'm on CNN and they're putting on the first ever TEDx conference. And the curator happens to like know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows me. And she's looking at the first TEDx conference to fill a spot on her stage about career change. And this person says, oh, you should ask, but she's had like 19 jobs. She's mm-hmm. basically like, like has multiple personalities when it comes to work because she's changed her job so many times. Have Mel come. So I go to this TEDx conference. I literally have a panic attack. If you look at my TEDx talk, you will see a chest rash starts to appear at minute one. I'm darting around the stage like a crazy person because I am so disassociated that I don't know what to do. And near the end of the talk, I forget how to end the speech. And I blurt out, oh, by the way, there's this thing I do. I call it the five-second rule. You got to move within five seconds of an idea or your brain kills it. I leave the stage. I literally say to my husband, I'm never giving a speech again. And then a year goes by. I'm still on CNN. And somebody puts that speech online. I don't even know. Another year goes by. So we're now talking 2013, late 2013. And people start to write to me and say, hey, I saw that speech that you gave. And I'm like, you were in the audience? They're like, no, it's online. I'm like, it's online? And by that point, it had a million views. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. Crazy. So people, I still haven't given a speech. So it's two years past. Haven't given another speech. I'm still on CNN. My people start asking me to speak at women's conferences. Okay. I don't know that there is an industry. I know that famous people get paid. I know that best-selling authors get paid. I didn't know that normal people did this for a living. So it doesn't even occur to me to ask to get paid. So I leave the Pennsylvania women's conference. And as I'm at the Pennsylvania Amtrak station, a woman walks 30th up to me. 30th Street. I know the 30th Street yes. station. Yes. I'm sitting there waiting for my train. And a woman comes up to me and says, I was in your session. I presented on a panel in the morning. You were great. Can I ask you a question? And I said, absolutely. And she said, did you get your check yet? That was my reaction. I was like, check? What check? <laughs> you got paid for that? And she goes, oh. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I just assumed you did. You were in the bigger room. I felt like such a moron. And so I had no idea that there's this huge industry with reps and agents and speaking bureaus and this like- Oh, it's a a massive industry. Massive. And so I had no idea what to charge. And so I came up with this simple rule. The next time somebody called, I would put myself in pause and then I would say- what's your budget? And then I would take a deep breath and I would say, normally I'm double. And I'd see what happens. And the next phone call that I got was a couple of weeks later. And I said, what's your budget? And he said, $10,000. And I dropped the damn phone. I had no idea that like, that was the kind of money that like somebody was getting paid to speak. And so, um, that, that guy that called has run my speaking business ever since. Wow. I mean, 
How did the, how did, there's, God, there's just a million things I want to talk to you about. How did the book start? Okay, so here's how the book started. As I start speaking and as the TED TEDx talk starts to gain steam, people are writing to me because uh, like just finding me, writing me, asking me a bazillion questions about the five second rule. I would literally work all day and then I would go up after the kids had been put to bed and pour a glass of wine and I would type answers to strangers' emails. And people were also starting to write with this profound uh, stories. I didn't, st I stopped myself from attempting suicide because I counted five, four, three, two, one. I've lost a hundred pounds using five, four, three, two, one. I'm able to be sober. And so I was so blown away. And as people started to pay me to speak, I felt this sense that I can't go on a fucking stage and tell people to count to five and their life will change. If I don't know why this is working. And now I've got all these stories of people around the world that this is working for. And so I just decided if I am ever going to be able to convincingly explain to an audience of thousands of people why you need to try this count backwards technique, I got to know what the fuck I'm talking about. So I took on a year long project working for CNN. Everybody returns your phone calls. Hey, I'm doing a research project. And so I talked to the world's leading researchers in habits and neuroscience and stories kept coming in and coming in. And so I also realized if I ever want to see my children and my husband, I need to write a book because I can't spend every evening answering strangers' emails. Right. And so I'm super dyslexic. It was a painful process. Luckily, it's a very straightforward book, but I put it all together and I wanted an agent because I thought that made you legit. But I didn't really have a platform yet, although I had CNN, and I just started to feel like it's going to take too long, and they're going to want to change the title, and I should probably just self-publish this because the only, and here's the other thing, the only people that would ever buy this are people that might buy it in the bookstore at an event I'm speaking at. Right. So I might as well just work with a publisher that's basically a printer that ships books. So right. That's what I did. And so we published it. And um, what's interesting is this is another one of those moments where, um, again, like it was the world's biggest disaster that turned into the biggest breakthrough of my career, where I, you know, once I knew the book was publishing, I'm like, oh, my God, I would love to, to be a bestseller. What do best-selling authors do? So I research it and I reverse engineer it and I do a pre-sale campaign. And I've got maybe, what, 5,000 people on a newsletter list. I have maybe 2,000 followers on Instagram. This would have been 2017. And so I mail my list. I, I feel like, okay, this is going to be amazing. We're going to sell a bunch of books. I might be a bestseller for a day. This will be incredible. And within an hour of me emailing my list, Amazon reported the book is out of stock. Oh. And at first I was like, incredible. We've sold 20, the 20,000 books that we've printed. What happened is because a couple speaking clients put in orders and because, you know, 500 people hit the page from my list, Amazon back in the day, when it got a flood on an unknown product would shut off supply until they could figure out what was going on. Really? So for the first three weeks that the book was out, you could not buy it because the only place it was being sold was Amazon. And wow. I had booked a speech every day 
with a book signing where we couldn't get books. And I had two podcast interviews during those three weeks. One was with Lewis Howes and one who was, who was not as big as his show is now. And the other was with Tom Bilyeu, who was just getting started. And um, honest to God, like I would go, I would fly from one speech to the other and I would literally be crying in the plane seat thinking I've screwed this whole thing up. Like I've, I've orchestrated that I've done everything. I'm a good person. Why is this happening to me? And I'll tell you why it was happening because I wasn't meant to be a best-selling author in the hardcover because I had also recorded the audiobook because I have a background in radio. And so we recorded the audiobook. My husband uploaded the files himself for the audiobook to the self-publishing platform on Amazon, which is Audible. Right. And because the book wasn't available on Amazon in a hardcover, everybody bought the audiobook. Amazing. It Amazing. shot up to number one. I forgot about the audiobook. I get an email from Audible one month after the book was out. It was now on Amazon. Who cares though? Nobody was even thinking about it at that point. And I get an email that says your um, October statement is in. I clicked on that statement. It was a six-figure check. No uh-huh. the, way. The, yep. And, and if the hardcover had been in stock. Nobody would have done the audiobook. Correct. And so what I perceived as one of my biggest professional failures was actually leading me to the biggest professional breakthrough that I've ever had because it opened my eyes to an entirely new business model, audiobooks. The five second rule is the most successful self-published audiobook in the history of Audible. I bring them more new paid subscribers, at least that year, than any other author that year. It was named the number one audiobook of the year. It was named the number one read book on all of Amazon in 2017. It has never made a bestsellers list ever in a traditional sense, because I am a self-published author. Right. And um, it's gone on to, you know, be translated in all these languages. And it led to a six book project with Audible that never would have happened had I succeeded in that original goal of trying to be a best-selling hardcover author. It's it's, it's an amazing story. But for people who don't know, explain, if you can, 54321. Oh, sure. So five, four, three, two, one is what I call the five second rule. And it's a little brain hack that you can use where you count backwards, five, four, three, two, one. And the counting backwards interrupts worries, interrupts anxiety, procrastination, any kind of thinking that holds you back. And it also interrupts uh, behavior that you want to break. So let's say you want to, um, I started using it to get out of bed in the morning when the anxiety was pinning me to the bed. I would, the alarm would ring and normally my old behavior, old Mel would start getting consumed with worry and problems. And then I'd hit the snooze button and drift back to bed. And that would, that, that pattern would go three or four times every morning. When I started counting five, four, three, two, one, when the alarm rang, I would magically stand up. It was really weird. 
And so I started using 54321 for everything. You don't feel like going to the gym, 54321, go to the gym. You don't feel like having the hard hard conversation, 54321, have the hard conversation. You um, you know, need to uh uh you you want to stop snapping at your kids, 54321. Pull yourself together. And so um that's how you use it. You use it in any moment where you know what to do, but you just don't feel like it. And the fascinating thing is that it's got so much science behind it. It's now being used in clinical settings to help people reprogram triggers associated with PTSD. We know of 111 people who have stopped themselves from attempting suicide by counting backwards. Uh, I have had an entire uh, nursing staff uh, show up at the daytime talk show to tell me that of all the tools they give people when they discharge them from an inpatient mental health commit, the five second rule is the most effective thing that they have to give somebody other than medication because it's simple, it's easy to remember, and tools only work when you can remember them. And so, and it's so good at interrupting the negative self talk, the ideation, the depressive thinking that can, you know, bring you so low. And so that's what the five second rule is. And the new book, The High Five. Yeah, The High Five Habit. The High Five Habit. Is that just reminding yourself? To do that? No, this is crazy. I, Ooh, I actually, love crazy. Do tell. I, I think this is the most profound thing I have ever discovered in my entire life. I think this is like even knowing that the five second rule has impacted the lives and saved the lives, you know, of the impact of millions saved thousands of people's lives. Um, I think that this is. 10 times more important. So the high five habit is very simple. Every morning, I want you to add a high five in the mirror to yourself, to your morning routine. Right after you finish brushing your teeth, you get all that gunk out of your mouth so you don't spread dragon breath everywhere. I want you to put your toothbrush down and take a minute and just be with yourself. And this is the hardest part for most people. Based on our research, 50% 50% of men and women can't or won't look at themselves in the mirror because they are so disgusted or disappointed with themselves. And 91% of people don't like their appearance. And so every single morning in everybody's morning routine right now, there is a really profound habit of self-rejection. If you can't look yourself in the mirror or you won't because you have shame or you think you're a failure or whatever, that's a habit of rejecting yourself. That's self-criticism. That's like a giant middle finger to yourself every single morning. And if you look at yourself in the mirror and you focus on the things you don't like, that is also a habit of self-rejection. And this is how everybody starts their day. This is the reason why, yeah. Me. I avoid mirrors throughout the day at all costs. All of my confidence is fake. And I am 90% of the times a quivering mess with all the negative Mm -hmm. yapping in my ears. And people find that completely crazy about me. And I'm like, oh my God. But again, I, in the morning I get consumed with anxiety, but I get up. So now when I get up to brush my teeth, I'll try and try this. Well, let me explain why this is game changing. 
The science on this is absolutely mind-blowing. In fact, Dr. Caroline Leaf, the woman who discovered neuroplasticity as a neuroscientist 30 years ago, was so blown away by this simple habit and the results that it creates in people that she said to me, I can't believe since I've been studying the brain and studying how you change your default programming that I didn't think of this. That's how genius this is. Um, so basically what you're going to do is, is let's talk about a high five to start. So when you high five somebody, what does the high five itself say? It's congratulatory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are you saying to the runners in the New York City Marathon when you high five them as they go by? Good job. Congratulations. Yeah. Keep going. You got this. I see you. I'm proud of you. You've never, ever high five somebody and thought, I hate you. Have a horrible day. Fuck off. Like you don't, you don't like you. Look oh, well, ugly. you're not, you haven't been that much in the entertainment industry. <laughs> <laughs> sure. High five. <laughs> well, then you know what those feel like, right? Yeah. Because they don't feel actually there's an intention with a high five. And so here's the cool, this is where it starts to get really cool. All that programming, all that neuro association with this physical movement, it's already in your subconscious. Your brain has a lifetime of programming, whether you've just seen it in sports or seen it in videos online, or you've received and given them for your whole life. Your brain knows what a high five is. It knows the intention behind it. So when you stand in front of the mirror and you see yourself, look beyond your face and realize there's not just you in the bathroom every morning. Now there's two human beings, right? There's you and the woman in the mirror and she needs you and she's tired of your criticism and she wished that you would actually look at her and she wished you would be kinder. And so when you kind of look at yourself in that regard and then you go and raise your hand, you don't say anything. You don't have to because the neuro association and the programming is already in your basal ganglia. It's already a habit in there. When you go to raise your hand, you'll start thinking, that Mel Robbins is so fucking stupid. I'm not doing And then all of a sudden, you'll notice it's silent. It's silent because you move from consciously objecting to it to your subconscious programming getting triggered by the physical action. As your hand hits the mirror, you'll probably laugh. And the reason why you laugh is because you always get a drip of dopamine when somebody else high fives you. So your brain gives you the drip of dopamine because the programming is already there. The other thing that you feel, which is really kind of odd, is you feel this weird kind of like, okay, you know, I guess I could handle this kind of energy. And that is because your nervous system is hardwired for celebration. Whenever you cross a finish line, you raise your hands. Whenever you, you know, your team scores, you raise your hand. When you wave hello, you raise your hands. When you high five somebody, you raise your hands. So as you go to raise your hand to yourself and you grab the neuro association that's positive and you get the dopamine, your nervous system then kicks in and is like, oh, okay, we got this, and zaps you with a little positive energy. Now, we know based on research that your mood in the morning impacts your productivity all day long. We oh, also, for sure, for all sure. All day long. And we also know that there's a whole field of study called behavioral activation therapy. When your brain watches you high-five yourself, the action demonstrates to your brain 
that you are the kind of person that is kind to yourself. Really? Yes. Do you know? So I'm 53 this year. Welcome to the club. Thank you. (laughs) I have never, ever experienced self-acceptance until I discovered this high five habit. It'll take you less than five days to totally see yourself differently. I used to avoid mirrors. I used to pick apart my appearance. After doing this every morning, just simple high five, send myself into the game of life with a high five and benefiting from all of the new neural pathway development, the neurochemistry that gets released, the new habit that's been encoded now in my mind, not only is the critic fucking muzzled, but it wouldn't even occur to me to criticize myself because not that I'm a arrogant, selfish asshole, it wouldn't occur to me to criticize myself because when I look in the mirror, I just see a human being that's trying. I see a human being that I like. I see a human being that has good intentions. I see a human being that deserves and is going to get my support, which is the same way I see my children. Even right. if they do things that piss me off, even though they forget stuff, even though they fuck things up, it doesn't change the fact that my baseline with them is I accept you, I love you, I'm here for you. And I am telling you this stupid fucking habit, high five in the mirror, don't say anything, the programming, the science, it is bananas how it works. The way you draw it to children is a, is a, is a great, what I call mental hopscotch trick. Uh, one last question before I let you go, because I do want to have you back to talk about mental health. Yes. Because I am a mental health advocate and a suicide prevention advocate. And I think there's a lot to discuss there. But my big question about High Five is, is it okay for those of us that have OCD to wipe off the fingerprints? Or do we have to leave the you fingerprints not, as you, a reminder? You cannot believe how many <laughs> questions I get about this. Um, really? <laughs> You don't even have to touch the mirror okay. if you don't want to. You don't even have to touch you. It's interesting because some people write and say, holy cow, I have OCD, but I love the handprint on the mirror because it's a reminder. Um, you can do whatever you want. You can okay. wipe them off. You can not. You, it'll work either way. Because I, you know, can't be looking at those fingerprints all day. All good. As long as you're looking at yourself. For anyone who does not know Mel Robbins, please check out the books. You can find them in 33 languages, which I find to be an exceptional number. The original book was the uh, five-second rule. The new book is High Five, which I am going to try myself. Mel, not only do we have matching glasses, matching jewelry, (laughs) and the same nickname, this has actually been a really profound thing for me. And thank you so, so much. It has been amazing. Thank you. 